Open up your Bibles. We are still in the book of Exodus, moving along. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17 this morning, picking up right where we left off on Wednesday night in verse 8. Exodus 17, verse 8, I remind you, the Israelites are camped out at a place called Rephidim. Rephidim. Anybody remember what Rephidim means? Rest stop. They are camped out at rest stop. And verse 8 says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about that when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sunset. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. Then he said, the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. At rest stop, the attack comes at the place of rest. And I want to encourage you to think as we go through this this morning, that while the attacks often come at the place of rest, the place of rest is the best place to fight from. We read all the way over in Ephesians, and if you're a quick turner, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, and let's frame our study for this morning with this New Testament passage. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Ephesians 6, 10, which reads, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. If that's not underlined in your Bible, please underline that. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Paul writes, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Attack at Rephidim. Friday, October the 5th, 1973, the streets of Israel were empty and quiet. The vast majority of Israelis were home on that particular Friday, making final preparations for a very special Shabbat, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur would fall on that eve, that Friday eve, and on into Saturday of that year. And so most of the Israeli defense forces were on leave. You understand that in Israel, when a, when a teenager gets out of high school, they immediately go into the IDF. Everybody has two years of service required. And so the whole country uh, mobilizes when necessary. But in this case, the whole country was at home, with the exception of a, of a few 
senior officers that were there in IDF headquarters in Tel Aviv. And they were watching and they saw some things that were concerning. They saw it down on the Sinai, along the Suez Canal in the south, a, a curious and massive buildup. The satellite images show this buildup all along the Suez Canal on the Egyptian side. And, and then to the north, strangely, oddly, on the Syrian side, there on the Golan Heights, a huge buildup of, of armored tanks. But come on, it's a holiday. It's Yom Kippur. No one would attack us on our most high and holy day of the year. If you know your history, you know that that evening began the Yom Kippur War. And that Egypt to the south and Syria to the north attacked in, in a massive attack. And, and by the way, Israel was once again discovered, found itself completely outmanned and outgunned and unprepared for this amazing attack. They're having a day of rest of Yom Kippur on into Shabbat, the day of rest each week. And yet the attack came as they were resting. There's a fantastic book, if you're into military history at all, about this war. It's called the Yom Kippur War. It's written by Abraham Rabinovich. And Rabinovich writes, in Jewish tradition, Yom Kippur is the climax of the 10 days of awe, during which man makes accounts with his maker. On this Yom Kippur, Israel's days of awe were just beginning. <laughs> By the end of the Yom Kippur War, Israel was halfway to Damascus. Had completely pushed back, finally in the south. It, it was, it's a remarkable, actually overwhelmingly unbelievable campaign, which is why it's, it's worth reading about. But I was thinking of this because isn't that just the way of things? You pause to rest, and that's when the enemy attacks. You slow down to catch your breath, and in he comes like a flood because he doesn't understand how it works. He thinks, I'll catch them off guard. I'll catch them at peace. I'll catch them at rest. That's when I'll get them, when they least expect it. Now, what's interesting in the history of the Exodus, and you may recall this at this point, that instead of taking Israel by the direct route to Canaan, the cool coastal Via Maris, the way of the sea, which would have just hooked right around and brought them up into Canaan, the Lord instead led them south into the wilderness of Egypt. Then he led them across the Red Sea and further south, down into what we would call the Arabian Peninsula, the, the wildernesses of Shur and Sin and Sinai, which I told you on Wednesday night, the wilderness of Sinai was not in what we call the Sinai Peninsula today. It was on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba in the Arabian Peninsula. And those wildernesses, Shur, Sin, and Sinai, they went into these before finally coming to the Mount of God. He led this, them this way for two specific reasons. Number one, the most obvious is he, he needed to bring them to the Mount, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. He had some special business that he needed to do with Israel at that time in terms of Torah law, in terms of the Mosaic covenant. So he needed to lead them down to that more remote place where away from everything else, he could bring his law to his people. But... He also led them that direction, the Bible tells us, to keep them out of conflict, to keep them away from war. Exodus 13, 17 says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near, for God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So as he led the children, the sons of Israel out of Egypt, he said, this is not a good time for conflict. Now, yeah, they were chased down by the by the uh, Egyptian army, but, but God protected them and kept them safe even from that. He didn't want to take them into a geopolitical combative mess. Let's keep politics out of this. Let's keep it, because if they went up through Philistia, who do you side with? Do you side with those warring on the side of Canaan or the Philistines or, or other warring groups? Stay out of the politics. Let's, let's just not even go there, the Lord says. And so he brings them south. And by the way, let me just mention to y'all that anytime we invite political strife into the journey of faith, it is bound to mess things up. Something I've been learning in this season is how to extricate my political views from my journey of faith. The political, Jew, the political Jews, 
The political views can get in the way, can confuse your faith because look, we're learning how to discern in this world spiritually. We're learning to discern by the spirit of God, not by the spirit of the constitution. And I love the constitution. Please hear me clearly on that. I have very strong and conservative political views myself. But that is not the lens through which I am called to read this world. The lens is the Spirit of God, the Word of God, the truth of God. Because any human side of politics can get confused. I want to discern by the Spirit. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So the Lord kept them from getting caught up in regional conflicts. And again, yes, they had, they had been attacked, almost run down at the Red Sea, but that's different from taking sides in battles that are not of the Lord. And the battles taking place in Canaan, those were not the Lord's battles. So the Lord kept them out of that, brought them down to the south, and finally here in Exodus 17, the travel-weary people arrive at Rephidim, rest stop, resting place, and that's where the attack came. Check it out, verse eight. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim, and we need to sit here for a few minutes. Might not seem like there's much to that verse. This is the power of the Bible. Every now and then you get one single verse and there's so much encased in the verse that the Bible actually begins to explain and open up later on. And this is one of those situations. Understand as we get into this, war finds them at the rest stop. War at the rest stop. But Moses gives a little more complete picture of this attack. If you just turn right a few books to Deuteronomy chapter 25, Deuteronomy 25. And in verse 17, Moses explains more of what actually happened at this attack of Amalek. Deuteronomy 25, 17, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. How he met you along the way, oh, let, me, let me pause there, when you came out from Egypt. So they're not in Egypt, which is another hint that they're not on the Sinai Peninsula, that they're across in this region where Amalek came to attack. When you came out from Egypt, verse 18, how he met you along the way and attacked you among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall come about when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you must not forget. How do you do that? <laughs> How do you blot out a memory but don't forget? I'll explain that in a minute. But what happened here at Rephidim, at the rest stop, was the Amalekites, according to Nahum Sarna, they ruthlessly cut down the stragglers, the infirm, the weak, perhaps children, the elderly. He writes, Israel was forced to fight its first defensive war for survival. They fought many since they reestablished as a nation in 1948. This is the first time it's a defensive war that is existential for the people of Israel. It's been repeated, as I said, multiple times in history. The enemy thinks they're fighting against Israel only to discover they're fighting against the God of Israel. Speaking of the enemy, the Amalekites says the Amalek came and attacked. The Amalekites were distant cousins, family, if you will, to the Israelites, descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. Genesis 36, verse 12 tells us Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, his firstborn son, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Amalek is grandson of Esau. You remember Esau, man of the flesh, the meat-eating man of the flesh. His nickname was Red, Big Hairy Outdoorsman. And so now we see his grandson and the people that came from his grandson, Amalek. Esau, the one who despised his birthright, who rebelled against God, married outside of the covenant people, and spawned generations of contentious opposition to Israel, among whom were the Amalekites. 
Amalek, you could say, was a chip off the old beef. <laughs> Another bit. Oh, I have missed your laughter. E even the eye-rolling laughter means so much to my heart. Another biblical picture here. Amalek of the flesh warring against the spirit. And you've got to keep that in mind. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But here we get this flesh picture, Amalek, like Esau, in that same line of the flesh, coming to fight against the people who are of the Spirit of God. They didn't fully understand that, granted, but they were God's people. So you've got flesh coming on against spirit. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8, verse 6, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The Amalekites a people of the flesh. They were the first among the tribal nations of Edom. Numbers 24, 20 tells us, you were the first among nations. And they were forced out ultimately from the region of Edom and they became a vicious nomadic people, moving about the Negev and southern Canaan. Now, if you looked at a map and you were aware of a map, you'd know even the Negev of Israel is pretty far north, quite a distance from the Arabian Peninsula from Rephidim, from where the Israelites were camped out, the Amalekites had to travel quite a ways just to get down there to attack them. Amalek, the name Amalek, is a, it's two Hebrew words thrown together and we're not exactly sure which two. We know the first one, Am, A-M, means people. So Amalek is people of something and then you've got to figure out is it Lakake or is it Malek? And it could go either way in the uh, etymology of, of Hebrew names. But if it's Lakake, if it's Amlakake, then it would be the people who lick, like a dog licks. If it's Amalek, which is more likely, it would be the people who bite. The people who bite. We have a dog that comes on our property every single day. Okay, it's because we give him biscuits, but, but, <laughs> but at first we were a little concerned. He's a big dog. His name's Buddy. He's a rescue dog that our neighbors have, and he would come over onto our property and just growl at us. And I was concerned with my little grandsons, you know, could they get, you know, chewed up by this dog? What could he attack? And he's actually a very, very uh, fearful dog. It takes a long time for him to trust, and he wouldn't bite. He'd be too scared if you just approached him, but he'd growl to try and put people off, and, and Buddy would come over, and it's just now to the point where he'll lick my hand when I hand him a biscuit. But I warned my grandson, Silas, just yesterday. I said, Silas, I want you to stay back because I know that Buddy's a sweet dog. He's sweet to me, but he might lick your hand and the next minute bite you. He might pull an Amalek. <laughs> the people who lick, the people who bite, Either way, the Amalekites are about to get licked. They are about to bite off more than they can chew. I'm telling you. <laughs> now, I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I got to tell you, just again, listening to your laughter. Last week for me, and again this Sunday morning, this is glorious. This is the best. Last week, though, we were in Exodus 15. Do you remember singing to and about the glory of God? And I loved teaching through it and studying through it. And I was so excited to share that message. This week was more difficult because the contrast is pretty severe for me. On the one hand, you've got singing about the nature of God in the Song of Moses. There are a few things more encouraging than worshiping the Lord. There are a few things more discouraging than looking at the enemy which is what we have to do today. It's not what I want to do. Tracking the traits of the enemy is never encouraging, but it is absolutely necessary. And so this is very different today. If we're to engage in spiritual warfare, looking here at the Amalekites attacking Israel, we need to understand spiritual warfare is much more than a buzz phrase. 
it's real easy for Christians to toss around the idea of spiritual warfare. You know, being under assault or under attack. And we can get so used to saying that, that, you know, if my razor doesn't work in the morning, it's an assault. <laughs> Spiritual warfare is serious business and there are things we must know. Why? 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So while we love to praise the Lord, we have to understand the attack plan and even the nature of the enemy because we would not be, should not be ignorant of his schemes. So let me give you three tactical traits of the enemy that we see in the fleshly Amalekites right here. Number one, jot this down, the adversary is territorial. He is territorial. If you look again at Deuteronomy 25, 18, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when he came out from Egypt. And I told you this was far south for the Amalekites to come to fight against Israel. Quite a journey. Why would they do that? Because they were territorial. Because they knew, they had heard now about this people of Israel. No doubt word of the Red Sea had spread all over the region. And so they come down to stop these people in their tracks before they can surge up into the land that the Amalekites know was promised to the Israelites. So their territory actually led them outside of their territory, their territoriality. So let's attack now before the Israelites can be established. And that's what the enemy loves to do. He attacks you as soon as you come out of Egypt he loves to go after the newly set free, the recently redeemed. Understand that new believers are prime targets because if he can just discourage and dissuade enough, he can stop the forward progress of coming out of Egypt. Remember, Egypt's a picture of the world. You come out of the world. Christians, we can get caught up in the world. The enemy loves that because we're ineffective. But when we recognize that, see that, and we begin to move again out of Egypt, when we move out of the world and into position for God, we become a threat to the enemy and he is territorial. And he will fight against that. Leave Egypt for salvation or worse, try to seek and save those who are enslaved and you threaten his turf. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So we come out of Egypt and we are called to stand and fight. The Amalekites were afraid of that. So is the enemy because the adversary is territorial. Second thing to note is the adversary is a terrorist. He's a terrorist. Verse 18, note this. Remember how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary. He's a cowardly bully. Amalek doesn't take on the front troops of Israel. He doesn't go head to head with Judah who led out the troops. He doesn't go head to head with those who are in the front. He finds his way around to attack the stragglers at the rear, at the back of the pack. Let me encourage you that sitting back is never a good posture in faith. Sitting toward the back, and I'm not talking about the auditorium, although I love that Deb Seibel has to sit in the front right now. <laughs> sitting back in your Christianity is not good faith posture. It leaves you vulnerable. I go to church, you know, when it suits me. I show up for all the major holidays. You know, it's, it's not a matter that we're not able to check you off on the, on the rolls there. It, it's a matter that it's bad for faith, not to practice, not to live our faith. Are you straggling? And, and here's a question that will help you know if you are or are not. Faith is not just a part of your life. Faith is not just an aspect of your life. Faith is your life. If you are a follower of Jesus, faith is your entire life, which means there's nothing it doesn't touch. That means at work, at home, among friends, out on a Friday night, your faith is everything. It's who you are. 
You're trusting God affecting every aspect so that there is no straggling, no leaning back. As the Hebrew pastor said, Hebrews 10, 38, quoting Habakkuk the prophet, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Faith marches, faith goes forward. Faith is right up front. It does not straggle in the back. But the enemy looks for the straggler. The enemy is aware of the faint and the weary. By the way, that's another issue of faith is when we're faint and we're weary, we are the most susceptible to attack. Married couples, don't you know that? If you're tired, that's the most likely time you're gonna have an argument. If you're weary, that's when you're not able to really think with, with you know, direction and clarity. And so weariness, that's, that's an issue that the enemy loves to use, which is why rest is so important. Learning how to rest in the spirit, learning how to rest in our lives. As Les loves to say that rest is a weapon. Hey, the faith life is not a driven life. It is a peaceful life. Let me say that again, the faith life is not a driven life, it is a peaceful life. It is a restful life. I mean, just listen to it in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things of a person at rest, a person at peace. And that is the faith life. But the enemy is a terrorist and will go after the weak and will attack in our weariness. Number three, the enemy has temerity. The enemy has temerity. That is, he's rash, he's headstrong, he is foolhardy, and he is presumptuous. Note the last phrase of verse 18, Deuteronomy 25, and he did not fear God. To his own demise. And it's always that way with the enemy. And he did not fear God. He has temerity. The enemy is so arrogantly self-absorbed. It's not, it doesn't say he wasn't afraid of God. It says he did not fear God, and the difference is he's so absorbed with himself and with what he's doing that he doesn't even stop to consider God. The Amalekites did not think about what they were really doing or they never would have done it. The enemy today, and I'm talking about the devil and Satan, is so self-absorbed with his plan and what he wants to do that he doesn't even consider what God is about, what God is up to, and it is to his own demise. Psalm 36, verse 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God in his eyes. And you've seen people like that. People that are enemy-led, who just don't, they don't think about what God's doing. They don't give it a second thought. There's no fear of God in their lives. I think about the two criminals on the cross next to Jesus. Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one answered and said, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. He goes on to say, we deserve what we got. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And you remember what Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Why? Because one criminal feared the Lord. The other one had no fear of God in his eyes. And, and that's the enemy. And that's enemy thinking. He's territorial. Don't tread on his turf. At least that's what he threatens. I say tread all you want. He's a terrorist. He will attack the stragglers and the weak. And he has a terrible temerity. He doesn't even think about what he's doing where God is concerned. So what do you do when the attack comes? Go back to Rephidim. Back to Rephidim. That's a statement in and of itself. What do you do when the attack comes? Go back to Rephidim. Go to the rest stop. Back in chapter 17, verse eight again, then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. 
So Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Which hill? We don't know. There are many hills and and rocky crags in that region down there in the Arabian Peninsula. Plenty of hills to choose from. But what we know, and the point is that Moses himself was stationed high above the field of battle where he could see and where he could be seen by the Israelites and the Amalekites, his people and the enemy, could see him up there on the hill. Now watch how they fight. Some things to jot down if you're a note taker. Number one, note this in verse nine, they fought under Joshua. They fought under Joshua. This is his first appearance in the Bible and it is very significant. It's the first time we see Joshua named. Now, obviously Joshua was foreknown by Moses. He was foreknown by the people, would have been among the people, perhaps a leader even in their march thus far, but he is never mentioned, never named until this point, until the attack at Rephidim. When the Israelites have to go to war, Joshua shows up for the first time, and that will frame much of the life he lives as a leader of Israel, a warrior for Israel. Now, this is so significant that they fight alongside or under the authority and the lead of Joshua because, and you may know this, Joshua is one of the most obvious types and pictures in the Bible of another Joshua, of Jesus. Same name, by the way, Jesus in the Greek is just the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua, Yehoshua, or we say Yeshua in the Hebrew. Same name. But, but it's more than just a shared name. Luke 1.31 says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, Joshua, God saves. But more than the name, Joshua fought with and conquered Israel's foes. That's what Jesus will do. He led them into the promised land as Jesus will do. He even parceled out, Joshua did, the land to the 12 tribes of Israel as we see the Lord do in Ezekiel 47 and 48 in the coming kingdom. And there are many more parallels we won't get into this morning. Once we get to the the book of Joshua, Lord willing, we'll look at a lot of things in which Joshua is a picture and type of Jesus. Just understand here, the very first time he shows up in the Bible, he is fighting for Israel. And that is a picture of Jesus showing up to fight when his people are at rest. They're at Rephidim. Joshua's been here all along, but his first scene is here at Rephidim, and note what happens. Secondly, note they obediently engaged the enemy. They obediently engaged the enemy. Moses tells Joshua, go choose men to fight, and I'll station myself on top of the hill, and note what it says at the beginning of verse 10, Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. He accepted the battle plan. Moses on the hill, Joshua on the field. And he did exactly as he was told, obediently. Listen, engage in the fight. Obediently engage. Join the spiritual fight. But brothers and sisters, while we fight, do so obeying orders. This is not a subtle point for followers of Jesus. It is very easy for us to engage in the fight and then go off on our own, fighting our own battles, what we think is important, and missing the orders we've been given by the king himself. Engage in the fight, but obey the orders. Follow the Father's battle plan, not your own. My battle plan would be a lot like Peter's, saying to Jesus, by no means, should you ever go down to Jerusalem and be crucified? No way we'd let that happen. Those are the battle plans of a man. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16 to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. For your mind is not set on the, on the things of God, but on the things of man. Two different sets of battle plans. Peter was a follower. Hey, many of us are followers, but it's so easy. You know this, I know this, to get caught up in my own way of fighting for the Lord. I'll fight for you, Lord, my way. Do as the Lord says. Engage in the battle, but fight 
his way. There's no room for argument. There is no room for talking back. There is no insubordination for followers of Jesus Christ. Joshua did as Moses told him. Turning your Bibles over to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, because we have an extension of this very story. King Saul, first king of Israel, the people's choice, not God's choice, but the people's choice, was given very specific battle orders, marching orders, sent out by the prophet Samuel, his orders coming from the Lord as to how he was to deal with a particular people that are familiar to you now, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Thou, now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. See, the Lord has never forgotten this. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has. Do not spare him. Put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And that sounds extreme and probably we'll spend a little more time when we get to Samuel talking about how that was okay. Even child, even infant to, to put to death, it seems horrifying. But Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Verse five, Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I don't destroy you with them for you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites alive. Wait. Was that part of the battle plan? He utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. You know what they're doing? Picking and choosing. God said, destroy it all. Saul said, destroy everything but the good stuff. Wipe out the stuff you don't really like anyway, but leave the good stuff. Bring that along. When you fight the enemy on the battlefield of the soul, do you leave some things alive? Are there some things that you say, oh, but that's, but that's the good stuff. But, but I, could use, I could use this to the glory of the Lord. I, I could use this to bless him. So I'm gonna keep that. Brothers and sisters, listen, this is a spiritual fight to the death and something's gonna die. It's either gonna be flesh or spirit. The question is, how are you gonna come out of the battle? Still clinging to the good things of the flesh or clinging to the spirit? Romans 13, 14, Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. But the story continues. The word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. See, I wanna hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, not why didn't you carry out all my commands? Oh, but, but Lord, I, I, I did these things. Yeah, why didn't you do these? Why didn't you do as I asked you to do? Samuel was distressed, cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. It was told to Samuel saying, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself, <laughs> then turned and proceeded down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears <laughs> and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, <laughs> they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. <laughs> this is just how I hear him talking. Sounds, <laughs> sounds kind of like Kevin from the office. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. 
And then Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said, speak. Samuel said, is it not true that though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king of Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went out on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back King Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the sheep and, and oxen, the spoil, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, note this, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. We did it for you, Lord. We save these things to sacrifice to you. Listen, Samuel's or, or Saul's partial obedience had two dramatic, disastrous outcomes. Because he didn't fully destroy Amalek, number one, Saul himself would be killed by an Amalekite. Second Samuel chapter one tells that story. But worse than that, it would affect all Israel, for the line of Amalek would spawn a genocidal anti-Semite in the days of Esther, the Hebrew queen of Persia, around 504 BC. His name was Haman the Agagite. The Agagite, that is of the line of Agag, king of Amalek. And Josephus, among others, traces that line right down Haman is a threat to the very existence of Israel because Saul did not follow the orders of the Lord. He did not obey. Man, engage the battle, but engage and obey. Do as the Lord calls us to do because Proverbs 14, 12 tells us there's a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's why accountability is so important among us that we call upon each other, challenge each other, fight the good fight, but do it under godly authority. Right, Jim? Jim sent me an article just the other day. We were reading, and maybe you heard about this, about a, a Baptist church up in Canada who just had to let go their, their senior pastor because he came out as a transgender woman. But it took them a month of discussion to come to that decision. Can I just give you permission if I ever came out as a transgender woman to let me go that day? How is this even a discussion? I know what times we're living in. I also know what this word says. And I know what the standards of righteousness are. And while we all fail, we are here one with another to engage in the battle and to encourage each other to obey the Lord, not the culture, not the whims of our flesh, but to listen to the Spirit of God. Back to Rephidim. So verse 10, continuing, says that Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Josephus and Jewish tradition hold that Hur was the husband of Miriam. And we don't know if, that, if that's absolutely for sure. Moses' brother-in-law was Hur, but, but it's likely. His brother and his brother-in-law, so Moses had his and her support. You see, while, while Joshua is on the battlefield intervening with the sword, Moses is on the hill interceding with the Lord. That's a great, a great pattern to follow. Intervening with the sword, interceding with the staff of God. While Joshua is in the valley of opposition, you could say Moses is on the mount of mediation. Hold that thought, look at verse 11. So it came about when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed and when he let his hand down that Amalek prevailed. Hands up, battle goes well. Put your hands down, the enemy surges. Acts chapter six, verse four, Peter said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. First Timothy two, verse eight, therefore I want men in every place lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And by the way, that's a prescription to the men because oftentimes the women don't have any problem praying. It's the men 
who need to be called upon, brothers, to lift up holy hands in prayer, to be men of prayer. Man, prayer is our positional place. It's our right to call out to the Father, male and female. But lifting up those holy hands in prayer is vital when the battle rages. Ephesians 6.18, again, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, Paul says. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Hands up, the battle goes well. Hands down, the enemy surges. Now listen to me. This story, this passage of Scripture, I would probably say 99 times out of 100 is used for teaching on the power of prayer in battle. But I'm not sure that's what's going on here. I'm not sure if that's actually the application that the Lord has for us. And I am not denigrating or undermining the value or the importance of prayer. But note in the story before us, it never says Moses was praying. Doesn't say he was praying. I, Moses up on the hill, lifted up the staff of God and called out to the Lord. Doesn't say that. Moses on the hill and Aaron and her were in concert praying one with another before the Lord. It doesn't say that. It just says he's holding up the staff of God. By the way, how long can you hold up your hands and not get tired? Just like this. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to do back in youth ministry, and I know Jake has done it with the kids at camp, saying, hey, let's, let's just hold it. You guys hold up your arms, and I'm going to do a short Bible teaching. Let's see how long you can last, right? And, of course, you say that to teenagers, and like, oh, I can go an hour and a half. Yeah. In like five minutes, the toughest guys are going. It's not easy to do to hold up your arms. For any normal human being, it gets unbearable in short order. And I love that we see this here because what we see is the frailty, the human frailty of Moses to make it very clear that it's the power of God in the fight, not the power of man. It's not the strength of Moses and the strength to fight and win this battle is not from Moses or from his upraised hands. And it yields something else that's beautiful here that the leaders stood together with, with, with steady hands. Verse 12, when Moses' hands were heavy, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and her supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. The leaders standing together. I, I've said this to our shepherds and our staff, that where a church leadership stands together, the church is secure. When the leadership starts to divide or be divided, the church will divide. And that, man, that's church 101. And I've seen it happen. If you want to divide a church, go after the leaders and divide them. If you can divide them, you will divide the church. So here we see this unity of these leaders standing together with, with steady hands. Jesus said, Matthew 18, 19, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, so that's the authority, that's the obedience, in my name, I'm there in their midst. I'm with you when you're gathered together in unity. One of the things I've prayed for more than anything else is unity on this hillside. That we gather together in the name of the Lord as unique as each of us may be. But note this, and you might want to jot this down even in your Bibles, this word steady. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. This word is used everywhere else. The word actually translates, it's emunah. Emunah, which means faithful. Faithful. Everywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures, it is used as a moral spiritual term. This is the only place that it's used in the physical. The only place that it's used to describe that their hands were steady, but the implication is the hands were faithful. Now listen closely to me here, because I'm dropping hints. I don't think this is about prayer necessarily. You see, the thing is we need steady, faithful hands. So let me ask you honestly, how steady is your prayer life? How steady is your prayer life? And I'm talking to the most prayerful among us 
to the least. If you think about the steadiness of your prayer life, you've got to recognize if our lives depended on the steady continuity of our prayer, we probably would lose many battles, if not salvation. I thank God my salvation is not determined on my ability to pray and pray continually. Because if it was, there would be dips and valleys and chasms in my prayer all the time. And I'm just saying that by way of understanding that all of us have those seasons, those times where we go, man, I haven't even talked to God about this. I haven't been in prayer about this. And we turn to the Lord and realize that we have these times where the hands are just down, man, because we're tired. Life's busy. If our salvation depended on our prayer life, we would be sunk. We need steady hands. We need faithfulness. Verse 13 tells us, so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. That's the fourth thing to note. If you're keeping track of these things, they overwhelmed the enemy, how? With the sword, with the sword. Overwhelmed, by the way, and this is another point, it means to weaken, it's yahalos. Overwhelmed, they weakened the enemy. It can imply heavy casualties, but not total victory. Man, we founded this fellowship on the sword of the word and the spirit of God. This is our understanding. We need both. We need not more of one or the other. We need both working together, our faith in the Lord, prayerfully calling out in the spirit and his word of truth. And it's both together, the sword of the word and prayer that we can win our battles. But understand that even this word, they overwhelmed the enemy with the sword. The word overwhelmed is weakened. They weakened the Amalekites to the point where the Amalekites had to break off their attack and, and, and run away. But they did not destroy the Amalekites. What are you saying, Rick? The Amalekites are going to come back and do serious damage to Israel just a year and a half later when Israel itself is unsteady and unfaithful. And we'll see that in Numbers 14. The sword, what does the sword do? The sword drives back the enemy. The sword drives back the enemy for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12, and piercing as far as the division of, of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Paul says again with the armor of God, he says, take the offensive weapon. Ephesians 6.17, take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we see this picture here of Joshua overwhelming Amalek and his people with the sword, driving them back with the sword. But understand, Bible students, how is your sword wielding? How effective are you in calling and recalling the word of God in battle? Let me tell you this, if our salvation depended on our Bible knowledge, not a one of us would be saved. We have a sword and we use the sword. But our ability to use the sword does not completely destroy the enemy. Oh, it'll drive him back, but he's not yet destroyed. There's only one who can do that. Revelation 19, 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. So when Jesus comes speaking his word, that's it, done deal. But I don't wield the sword as well as Jesus does. Understand that in his hands and from his mouth, the final push will bring total victory. In the meantime, yes, we have the sword of the word of God. Yes, we have prayer. Because, as I said, our battles are spiritual in nature. As Paul said, 2 Corinthians 10, 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that's the goal and that's the call. But understand this, one of the greatest challenges to our spiritual lives and this idea of spiritual warfare is focus. Focus. I've got my Bible and I intend to study it. And I intend to read and be familiar with the word and be able to recall it. I, I desire that. 
And some weeks are really good. And then there are those other weeks. I've got the ability to call out to God. I intend to pray without ceasing, as Paul says. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Oh, that sounds good. Pray without ceasing. And yet, for prayer and the ministry of the word, guess what? I still get wounded in battle. My arms get tired and come down. I am not as steady as I would like to be. Remember what I said. This is a spiritual fight to the death. Something's got to die. It's either going to be flesh or spirit. But now read on and I'll come to the point. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and named it the Lord is my banner. And he said, the Lord has sworn and the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. The Lord has sworn, he says. I like the original language. The actual translation is hand upon the throne. The Lord has sworn is to say the Lord has his hand upon the throne. As Jesus said, Matthew 23, 22, whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. And God alone can do that. God can put his hand on the, on the throne and swear on the throne and on himself. So it's an absolute word. His hand is on the throne. Therefore, Amalek is done. Not yet, but he's done. This will be finished. It's an absolute word. Amalek must be wiped out. And he would be. He would be. By the way, this is also the first time we see writing mentioned in the Bible. That word, write this, inscribe this in a book. It's the first reference to writing and it leads some to believe that this is the oldest scripture. That this was actually written down before the rest of Torah, even before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, that this was the first thing that Moses actually wrote and kept. Exodus 17, 8 through 16, the spiritual battle at Rephidim is the first inscription. But note this verse. Well, that's Deuteronomy uh, 25, 19 again says, I told you I'd, I'd explain this. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, you must not forget. How do you blot out and not forget? And Dennis Prager says to this day, when Jews speak of a particularly evil figure, Hitler is often addressed or spoken of this way, they will often follow the mention of the name with the words, Yamak Shemo Vesikrino, which is Hitler, may his name and memory be blotted out. Haman, may his name and memory be blotted out. So the idea here, what God is saying, what he's declaring is do not forget to forget Amalek. Don't forget to forget him. Don't forget to blot him out. Don't forget to wipe him out. And so the Amalekites ultimately would be taken out, wiped out. Finally, guess when? In the days of Hezekiah. Hundreds of years later, finally this would be taken care of. First Chronicles chapter 4, verse 43 tells about that. But listen, now back to this. The, the whole idea of our focus in the fight. I told you, we have prayer, but we're not so steady in our prayer. We have the Word of God, but the most scholarly among us don't always wield it correctly. We have these implements of our warfare, and yet our focus still remains at issue. And so I said before, this passage is often used as encouragement and motivation to pray, especially in spiritual battle. And that's good. And we should. But again, there's nothing here that says Moses was praying. Oh, well, but his hands were lifted up. Raised hands don't signify prayer, not in this instance. Hands lifted up in prayer, that's, that's the meaning for us today. That's our cultural understanding. And we take that from Paul saying, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer. So we immediately make the assumption that prayer happens to be about meditation. No, hands lifted up in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Jewish mentality, hands lifted up are not about meditation. They are about mediation. Mediation. Get the picture in your mind. Moses is up on the hill and he holds high the staff of God as the Lord's mediator in this 
fight. You know what a mediator is? A Wi-Fi extender. That's the best way I can put it for you. We have a, a long household, and a third of the household is where my in-laws live, and we always have Wi-Fi problems on their side of the house because our modem is on my side of the house, where, where it should be. It's on my side. <laughs> it's in the office, and so we send out that Wi-Fi signal, and once you get to the hallway that leads down to their house, the signal's just no good. So we got a little Wi-Fi extender. We plug it into the wall, and, and, and it takes the original signal goes to the extender and then the extender shoots it out. The extender is the mediator. The extender is the go-between, if you will. That's Moses standing on the mountain as the mediator of what's taking place. Again, the power wasn't in Moses himself. The power wasn't in the sword of Joshua on the battlefield or even words that Moses may have prayed, which is why verse 15 is the sum of the whole story Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. Yahweh Nisi. What are you saying, Rick? What do you see when Moses holds up the staff? You see a man on a hill with a wooden staff or a pole? I see the cross. I see the cross a mediator on a hill with a pole. Held up before the Lord, lifted up before God. Understand the Bible is very clear. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men and his name is not Pastor Les. Thank God. And his name is not Pastor Jake or Pastor Rick. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time, Jesus on the cross on the hill is the focal point of our faith, the focal point of our prayers, the focal point of our wielding of the sword of the word of God. Jesus is Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, our banner. Our banner. I love that Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Galatians 6, 14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Jesus doesn't just weaken the enemy when he went up on the cross, he doesn't just drive back the enemy for a time. Lifted high at Calvary, he defeated the enemy to the uttermost. He wiped out the enemy. Colossians 2.14, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed not driven back, triumphed over them through him. Or like the old hymn sings, Christ, our royal banner, leads against the foe. And what I'm telling you this morning is we can wield the weapons of prayer and the word, but if our eyes aren't on Jesus, we will fall in the battle. If our focus is not on him, we will lose, but if we're focused on him, we've already won. Game over. How does that work? It means in your prayers, you're not trying to pray up a storm with big impressive words. You're praying the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means in the use of the word of God, you're not just trying to find scriptures that'll prove your point. You're looking for Jesus and declaring and proclaiming Jesus about whom this entire book is written. That it's got to focus on him that he's the point of the power to fight the spiritual battles. And I remind you, as we conclude, that we fight from Rephidim. We fight from the place of rest. And it was Jesus who said, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, we might add straggling, and I will give you 
rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. God, we're engaged in the battle right now. And many of us in this season struggling to understand our part, our place, our position, uncertain, Lord, of, of, of how we're understanding what's taking place. Father, so many of us trying to just discern, we don't wanna be taken. We don't wanna be undermined by, by the governmental authorities. We don't want to, to be shaded by these things. We wanna walk in truth. We wanna stand for you. Lord Jesus, we want to be engaged in the battle and obedient. And so I pray that you will refocus us once again on Jesus, author and finisher of our faith. That we would be filled, Lord, with the same spirit of Jesus, with wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Lord Jesus, that you would be the focal point of our prayers, the focal point of our Bible understanding and knowledge and, and even use, that you would bring us back to you and your purposes, your will, your ways. And we might be known in this world, not as people who are fighting for our own, but as people who stand in the name of Jesus Christ, Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, our banner. And so we worship you, we praise you, and we say, lead us, oh, lead us, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen.